Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. We're starting a sermon series. Um, it's going to take us, I think, all the way up through the summer. We're going to be in... I've always wanted to preach Hebrews, so I finally get a chance to do it now. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to a walk later this afternoon in the sunshine. Isn't it beautiful? It's finally here, finally back. So glad that it's bright. Two Mormon missionaries knock on the door of your house and you invite them in. What's difficult about the experience, I mean, you want to be friendly to them. You, uh, you want to have a genuine conversation with them. But it's always very difficult to have a conversation with someone who's following a script. And the script goes like this. They begin by asking you the question, how did God reveal himself to people in the past? Well, you think about it for a minute. Mm, I guess he revealed himself in the past through the, the prophets, right? You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Moses might be considered a prophet. And they said, that's exactly right. All right. Well, then how would God reveal himself today? If he wanted to reveal himself, how would he reveal himself today? And you're supposed to say, well, I guess through the prophets. And that's where, where they, they've got their hook in you. <laughs> we have good news. God has revealed himself through the prophet Joseph Smith. And if you will just pray that God would confirm, confirm this, and you'll feel a burning in your bosom at some point in the future. And you know, welcome to the, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Here's the way that you should respond to that question, to those questions. Verse 1, the better reply. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, and many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The definitive, final, full, beautiful revelation. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the the universe. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus. (laughs) It is Jesus all day, every day. Jesus who is better than Moses. Jesus who brings the better covenant. Uh, Again and again, the author of Hebrews is going to start with some passage from the Old Testament. And and whoever wrote it was a, a Jedi master when it came to the, the Hebrew scriptures. I mean, he, he brings out nuances, or she, maybe. She brings out, I mean, we don't know. Is it a man? Was it a woman? They, they bring out nuances in the Old Testament scriptures that regular people do not see. Again and again, they'll take an Old Testament passage and say, it points to something. Do you know what this points to? And it, and it always ends up pointing to who, to what, to Jesus. So the, this is going to be a recurring theme. We're going to talk a lot about Jesus in this sermon series. I hope that makes you cheer inside. <laughs> I hope you, you say, I, I want more of Jesus, because it's all about Jesus. Verse 3, the same Jesus is, is the Son, the Son, it says, is the, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty in heaven, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, citing another path, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. James Cameron's movie, Avatar, is the highest grossing film of all time. I think it made somewhere along the lines of $2.8 billion at the box office worldwide. Anybody seen Avatar? Presumably most of us have. Um, In the movie, there is a greeting, or there is an expression, the native inhabitants of the planet Pandora use when they are speaking to one another. In this greeting, it's a greeting of respect. They give it to to someone who has shown noble character. That saying or that, that greeting is three words, I see you, I see you. By that, they don't mean that they see 15 feet of blueness standing in front of them. They're not talking about physical seeing, but they're talking, I see I see your character. I see into your soul. Uh, I, I know you. I see who you are. The question we're going to be considering as we go through the book of Hebrews is, how can we see Jesus? Um, how do you see Jesus? Especially if you're here this morning and you're not sure if you're a Christian. Uh, how do you see somebody who is invisible? <laughs> um, how, how do you do that? Someone whom you cannot touch? You cannot see physically? And that was one of the first questions I wrote down as I'm reading through the passage at the beginning of this week. How do you see? How can I see someone whom I cannot see? And that's one of the questions we'll be, um, we'll be considering. But, but I want you to realize that physicality is not everything. I mean, in fact, our physical attributes can be somewhat misleading, can't they? You don't know, you don't know what makes me tick by just looking at my physical attributes. Uh, You don't know what makes me happy or sad or or gets me jazzed up or you don't, you don't know what gets me up in the morning. You don't know my biggest struggles or my fears. Physicality is not everything when it comes to personhood. I married a couple, it was about 10 years ago, who met in a chat room. And pretty much all of their dating relationship was spent either on the telephone or online. Um, and the, Texting wasn't as big, I guess, 10 years ago, but you could say the same thing. I mean, pretty much all of their, your conversation is nothing but texting. Because she was living in Idaho, he was living in Iowa. Uh, that happens frequently now. You, you end up having a, a real deep relationship. You get to know a person before you even see that person. In some respects, that's even better than regular dating. Quote, is what one of the guys said. He said, I didn't need to see her to get to know her. All I needed was for her to open up to me and for me to open up to her. And that's what I want to suggest to you, is that for us to see God, we may not have to actually see God so long as God uh, desires to open up himself to us. And he's done so. In Jesus Christ. 
A little background on the book of Hebrews. One of the great mysteries of New Testament scholarship is we don't know who wrote this book. There have been a lot of names suggested down through church history. Paul was the, the one who was suggested the most by the early church, but hardly anybody today believes that Paul is the author. Uh, Barnabas, somebody has suggested that. Apollos. We don't know who wrote the book, but we do have a pretty good idea of who it's written to. It's the epistle to the Hebrews, i.e. it's written to Jewish Christians, converts to the faith, who were experiencing, you know, they were experiencing a very similar temptation that Muslim converts, converts to Christianity experience today. And that temptation is, is how can I, how can I uh, no longer be persecuted by virtue of, of following Jesus? Is, is there a way for me to go back underneath the Muslim or Jewish umbrella of my culture and, and yet still think that Jesus is a, is a pretty good guy? Have a high view of Jesus, but escape all of, well, in the first century, the persecution that came with not being a Jew. Judaism was a a legalized religion. Christianity was a seditious, dangerous sect. Is there a way that I could kind of go back underneath the umbrella of Judaism and spare myself all of that trouble and no longer be hated by uh, my extended friends and family? I mean, because they thought that Christianity was crazy. And that's what Muslims are struggling with today is, can I be sort of a Muslim that that thinks of Jesus highly? Maybe he's an angel. Maybe he's he's a prophet. Maybe uh, that was one of the suggestions that the early Christians or these these Jewish Christians were, were thinking about is maybe Jesus is an angel. And that's why through the remainder of chapter one, you have this for us, a kind of an esoteric conversation about Jesus being better than the angels. Uh, I doubt there's anybody here uh, that, da- that disagrees with that statement at all. Jesus is better than the angels. Well, for them, that was probably a, a release valve. It was a way to-, to escape from all the pressure, the societal pressure and the personal pressure that they were experiencing. What is the author of the, uh, the letter's answer to all of this? Can you go back to your former way? Can you have a high view of Jesus, but still be a Jew, or still be Islamic, or still be Hindu? And he says, that's not an option. Because to believe in the real Jesus is, yeah, Jesus is so high up there. That in order to believe in him, um, if you go up and visit, you get a nosebleed. And <laughs> nosebleed Christology. That's what I entitled this sermon. There's six things that we read about Jesus here, and I want to uh, go through them pretty quickly with you. Six things spoken. First, it says that the Son is the exact representation of God's being. But the word there in Greek for exact representation happens to be the word character. Now, in English, character can mean two things. You can have a character in a play or in a story, or you could have char- character as in an alphabet, in alphabetic characters. Curiously enough, those two are linked together in the ancient past. In the ancient world, you didn't have a printing press until the 15th century, but you did have something that was nearly equivalent. You had an engraver 
the emperor would employ an engraver who would engrave the, the character, the image of the emperor or one of the gods and the corresponding words that you want to have on your coins, he would engrave that onto the hard metal. Then you fire up the fire and you put your ore in there and you have the soft metal and it's into the, that metal you stamp your engraving coin and that's where we get the word from. So a character is both. It's an it's a image representation and it's also an alphabetic character representation. So stick with that metaphor for just a minute more. Imagine that the emperor has been wanting for a long time to show his subjects who he is and what he is like. But he doesn't have a metal, a metal stamp to use. The metal stamps haven't been invented yet. In such a case, what the emperor might have to do is he'd, he'd have to resort to you know, sketches, drawn-out kind of rudimentary sketches. So last time, two weeks or three weeks ago that we had our junior high and high school group, we played Pictionary on the Apple TV. And those images were very rudimentary. (laughs) Most of us, those of us who can't draw, I mean, they're they're pretty bad. Well, imagine the emperor, he's sending out sketches for a long period of time until finally, finally the metal stamp is formed. Finally, the gold is put into the furnace and it's heated into a temperature. And that's what's going on here. That's what our writer is saying about Jesus Christ. New Testament scholar Tom, Tom Wright says, it is though the exact imprint of the Father's very nature and glory have been precisely reproduced in the soft metal of the Son's human nature. This, Jesus Christ is, is the stamp of God. Uh, Jesus Christ, you... you, you Somebody might ask you the question, do you know what God looks like? Yes, we do. We know what God looks like. He looks like Jesus. You look in a mirror. It's like looking at God in a mirror, and what looks back at you is is Jesus. So that's the character of God, number one. The second thing that we read here, verse 2, is that Jesus is the creator God. Not only the exact representation but also the co-creator, at least in Christian theology, we believe in Trinitarian creation. So Jesus is the co-creator of the universe with the Father and the Holy Spirit, which Jesus is the creator. That is a statement that means more to us. I think it means more to us today than it did to our great, great, great grandmothers. Because we have the Hubble telescope today. They didn't. We have the scanning electron microscope. We understand the sheer immensity of everything that's out there and, and the sheer tininess of, of everything. Did you know that the moon is 211,463 miles away? If you were up early enough this morning, the moon was spectacular. As we're, Cora and I are driving to church here at 7 o'clock. The, that's 211,463 miles away, which is nothing compared to the sun, which is 93 million miles away, which is nothing compared to Pluto, which is 2.7 billion miles away. And did you know that the North Star, the North Star, which we can see many nights, is a mere 400 trillion miles away, and yet that's 
relatively close in proximity to what we know about the, the full uh, expanse of space. Is it all there by chance? Did it just all happen? No, we say that it's all there because a Jewish man made it. We say it's all there because some guy who died at the age of 39, at the beginning of the first century, 2,000 years ago, was actually the eternal preexistent son of God, and he made it. Brothers and sisters, if you believe that, you are, you're insane. <laughs> you're a crackpot. <laughs> I mean, what a, if you really believe that, you're a kook of the highest magnitude. I guess we'll be kooky together, with, along with all those other Christians of the last two uh, millennia. You know, we believe a lot of kooky things. We believe that this world is, we believe the world is populated and infused with angels and demons. That's kooky. You start talking to people about that, they're going to look at you very strange. We believe that there is an eternal future for every human being, that every human being possesses a soul, a soul that is never going to die, that's going to last forever. We believe there's an eternal future of heaven or hell. We believe, and we believe that a 39-year-old Jewish man possessed and still possesses all the prerogatives and power of deity, and this same Jewish man loves me and he loves you. If that's not odd, I don't know what is. Well, it gets crazier still. The next one, verse 3, we'll cont- we see that not only is Jesus the creator God, but the author says he's, he's the sustainer God. He sustains the universe by the word of his power. Sustains the universe by the word of his power. What a, well, what that means, as best I can get my head around it, is that if Jesus Christ wasn't holding Everything to, together, everything that we know right now would go poof and would vaporize. I mean, where's my pen? So we know that I mean, we, can, we can analyze things on the subatomic level, basically. We know that this pen, strangely enough, there is space in between these molecules. I mean, it looks solid to me, but, but if you just dig down far enough, there's, there's space in between these things, and there, there must be some kind of atomic bonds that are holding all of it together. Well, what, what's holding the atomic bonds together? <laughs> and I, I don't know if, if it's proper to say it this way, but uh, I think it's Jesus. I think that he's holding all of it. The, the laws of gravity get held together by Jesus. Quantum physics is, is, is all because of Jesus. Yeah, he's the one who sustains the world in existence. Uh, At this very moment, right now as I'm speaking, everything in the universe continues to exist because a Jewish man is maintaining it. (laughs) Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Okay, the next one. It says that not only is the creator God the sustainer God, but he is also the radiance of God, the radiance of God's glory. When Moses began to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, recall the story. Something appeared that was very important. During the daytime, the, the, the something that appeared looked like 
a cloud. But at night, you would be able to very clearly distinguish that it was actually a fire, a pillar of fire. So during the day, it looks like this big thing of smoke. And during the night, it's this, this radiant pillar of fire, which was so strong that it kept an entire army from passing it. Remember, the Egyptians were stopped in their tracks. They couldn't follow the children of Israel. It, it was impenetrable. It was so, so great. Well, fast forward in the story to Mount Sinai. And the children of Israel led to Mount Sinai. Well, a, a very similar type of, of fire comes down upon the top of Mount Sinai. Remember what happens in that moment. You have lightning and thunder and flashes. It's, it's so frightening that nobody's even allowed to stand on the mountain because the, the shining radiance, the greatness of all that, you would die if you set foot on, on the mountain. We'll fast forward a, a little later into Israel's history. And the, uh, during the days of King Solomon, when they were, when they were with the temple, um, commissioning the, the, the beginning of the, of the service uh, of the temple, again, the the, the the fire falls down upon, and everybody that's in there that's worshiping that morning, they hit their faces to the ground because they can't, they can't stand to, to look upon the radiance. And yet now the author of Hebrews says the radiance of God is, is here in the face of Jesus Christ, but it's a radiance that we can look at. It's no longer a radiance like the sun, that if you spend any time looking at the sun, it'll burn out your retina. Now you can look at the radiance and... and And it's there for you to see the radiance of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Two more. It says that the Son is the heir of God and he is the heir of all things. What is it that Jesus Christ inherits? If he's the heir of all things, what is it? What does he get to? According to Psalm 2, it says that his inheritance is is the nation's. It's the nations. It, he, Jesus Christ inherits Saudi Arabia and China and Canada and the United States of America and Bolivia and the Sudan. Jesus Christ inherits all of the people in those places because he spilt, spilt his blood for them. He, 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 uh, they are his and he should take it. And every time that we engage in some type of missionary activity... We are bringing to Jesus that which is rightfully his. And then finally, it says that after he had made, after he provided purification for sins, and the rest of the letter is going to flesh out how does Jesus Christ bring purification for sins. After he did that, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I hope that most of us know what the gospel is. The gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can actually expand on that if you have more categories. The gospel is the the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. His birth and his ascension are both. You you could even expand on it more more fully than that. You can expand up, up to seven you say, why the number seven? Because it's in the Bible. Everything is seven. The gospel is the life, death, no, sorry, the birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation. And do you know what the seventh one is? 
and the session of Jesus Christ. Session comes to us from a Latin word which means to be seated. The gospel, why is it, what's so exciting about Jesus Christ taking a seat? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll answer that question by asking you a question. That is, when, does, when do fathers take a seat? When do dads, dads like to take a seat after the end of a long, hard day, walk into the house, they look for their lazy boy, their comfy chair, boom, they sit. When do mothers get to take a seat? Like, they don't, do they? <laughs> in heaven, they get to take a seat in heaven. Because their work is never done. There's always more to clean, more, to, more kids to take care of, more things to do. A mother knows that if she sits down, she's not even have the energy to ever get back up again because she's so tired. You sit down when your work is complete. That's what is being said here. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven because his work on earth was complete. His work of providing purification for sins was, was complete and for, it was for us. Psalm 110, he said, sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool of your feet. Uh, the session of Jesus Christ is, is very good news. <laughs> very good news. And one of the themes that will keep coming up in the book of Hebrews is how in the Old Testament, the priests never sat down. The priests never got to take a seat. Day after day, the priest would... Uh, be in the temple, would never be able to sit because they're always offering yet one more, one more sacrifice. You've got just one, one additional sacrifice. And one of the themes of Hebrews is how finally a priest comes who offers a sacrifice that is entirely complete. Okay, let me conclude with this. I see some of you falling asleep. <laughs> I'll conclude with two scenarios that Kevin DeYoung comes up with. Um, two, two different types of churches and different types of pastors. Um, so you, you go to one church and the preacher is really into justice issues. And he tells you, look, if you're a Christian and you're really serious about justice, then here are the things that you'll do. You'll drive a hybrid. If you're serious about justice, you, you'll buy fair trade coffee. Uh, you, you, you won't live in a large house. You'll probably downsize your house to something under 2,000 square feet because and you can't purchase products made in countries where fair labor wage laws don't, don't exist. If you're, really, if you're a real Christian and you really care about justice, that's, the, that's what you will do. But then you go to another church, and it's a different kind of church. And maybe in another church, the pastor is really attuned to worldliness. And he says, look, if you're a good Christian, if you're a serious Christian, you'll get rid of your television sets. You'll never, you'll never go to see a movie again. There's nothing that, that, that Hollywood produces is worth seeing. It's just all trash. You, know, you get rid of your television sets. You get rid of your video game systems because that's what Jesus would, would have you do. Now, those are caricatured versions of, uh, of churches, but we've heard of churches like that, haven't we? We've, we've met Christians like that. Here's my question. How many churches are known for how many churches are known for their big, audacious views of Jesus? How many churches are known for, for, for Jesus Christ is, is so titanic, so immense to those people? The, the, you take the bowling ball and you set it down in the middle of your 
your bed, your mattress, and then you take the little marble and you put it on the mattress and it always, it always follows the concavity where the building... How many people... How many churches are known for worshiping a Jesus that, that bends their time and space and their everything? How many churches press their people into, if you're a serious Christian, you need to be going deeper into the greatness of Jesus. And the answer is, is, I don't know that there's any churches out there like that. Because there's not many pastors out there like that. There's not many church leaders out there like that. I know that I want that to be true of me. But is Jesus this, that titanic of a reality to, to me? It, when I get around him, does my nose start to bleed when I think about him? Yeah. But that's where we're going, brothers and sisters. That's where we, we need to, that's our goal. Um, if you really care about this faith, you won't be satisfied with your present view of Jesus. Because it's too small, it's too feeble, it's too pathetic. It is. So when in 1961, Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin, he was, you know, the first man to travel into space, he came back down from the epic flight and he had the, the famous quote. He said, I went up to the heavens and I saw that, that God, God's not there. I mean, he was probably being fed that line by one of his USSR handlers, but he said, God's not there. He's not there at all. Heaven is, I've been to heaven above and he's, he's not there, but but he is there. Uh, and heaven is not 400 miles or 4,000 miles above us. Heaven is a, is a different dimension. And if we were able to peer into heaven right now, what you would see is God seated on his throne and he looks like Jesus. Why don't we obsess about Jesus Christ? We get so obsessive, so obsessive about a lot of other things. And I get, that needs to change. We, we, we don't know the author of the letter, but we know something about him, and that is he was obsessed with Jesus. And he, the argument is again and again, I, I want to see Jesus. He has his eyes fixed on Jesus. At the end of the letter, in chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 13, verse 8, when he draws everything together, he urges us to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. That's what can transcend all of your and my problems. That's what this life is about. Let's go... Let's go out into the world today and for the rest of the week with the desire to say, I, I see you. I can see you. I want to see you. I beg to see you. Amen.